Welcome to the Fraser Basin Council's First Nations Home Energy Save podcast. I'm your host, Darla Simpson, coming to you from beautiful North Vancouver, British Columbia, on the traditional lands of the Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations. In this podcast, we'll be talking about strategies to find and select contractors for your energy efficiency renovation projects. Uh, we have with us our guest today, Stefan Tranglet, uh, an engineer with SES Consulting. Welcome, Stefan. Hi, Dawa. Thanks for having me on again. Nice to have you back. Uh, so today we're going to be discussing a few big ideas to help Indigenous communities ensure that they're selecting the right contractor to do their renovation projects and ultimately have the home improvement outcomes they're looking for in terms of cost, energy savings, and home performance. So what are the challenges that most folks run into when they're looking for and selecting a contractor? Well, there's a few big big items that we hear feedback from a lot of folks is knowing what to ask for. And that's a, that's a really encompassing question, and it includes what equipment that they want or what kind of performance or comfort standards that they're looking for, uh, what trades or specific skills or certifications should they be asking the contractors to have, and, and then there's where to find a contractor, especially if you're in a, in a more rural or remote community evaluating if they are good or not, or if you're getting good value. Yeah, and I, th- I think like so many things, uh, being able to assess the quality, are you going to get a good product out of it? And of course, good value also speaks to good performance. Um, that means quality equipment and quality installation, which are two of the really big factors in making sure that your home is going to perform as you intend. Scale and complexity of the project is also an important factor. You don't need a whole formal proposal process to replace a door. So what are kind of the common tools in the contracting industry and maybe scaled for those small, simple projects right up to say uh, a more complicated home renovation or even a multi-home renovation? For sure. Well, well, you really kind of hit the key topic there when you said scale, because the amount of effort that should go into finding a contractor and defining their work, it really does scale with the size of the project. So we have a few different terms that we throw around in this industry, estimate, quote, and proposal. And these are all kind of similar, but have some important nuances. So first of all, an estimate is is something that you can often get over the phone, uh, something that you can often get with relatively few details about the project. But you really have to understand that if someone gives you a estimate, that is not a number that you can really hold them to. The other two words, quote and proposal, they're very similar. Generally, a quote is just the dollar value for a specific scope of work. So if you tell the contractor exactly what they need to do, they can provide you with just a plain old number. They'll say, yes, we can do this. Yes, we can do it on your timeline. And here's our dollar price for that. A proposal is generally a little bit more detailed. You might expect to receive say a two-page PDF document, or maybe it's just a longer email that describes the, the fee, of course, there's a dollar value associated with it, but there's also conditions to it where they might describe what type of equipment they will use to fulfill the goals that you have put forward. So one way to understand it is like an estimate is good when you're just trying to budget for a project. It'll give you a ballpark. A quote works when you know what you want and you can go to a contractor and say, I'm looking for X, Y, Z delivered by this time. What's it going to cost me? So you've defined the parameters really well or define what you need really well. And then a proposal, I guess, is a bit more open-ended saying, this is the final product that I want. How do you propose I get there for the best price? Yeah, that's a great summary of it. Yeah. 
There are some good tools and templates available through BC First Nation House Mentorship Procurement and Project Management uh, Program, or you can check out uh, FINBOA, which is the First Nations National Building Officers Association, and both of them have some really good tools and templates around procurement. So in the real world, the definition between a proposal and a quote yeah, they're not so super well defined. I'm a housing manager. I've got a project. I need to find people to do the work. Where do I start? Well, the first thing that you need to do is, is compile some information uh, that you're going to give to the contractors that they can actually be able to price the work on, right? And in, in the industry, we call this a request for quote or request for proposal. You'll see those terms bounced around a lot, RFQ, RFP. And really what this is is just a package of various information that the owner provides the contractor in order to describe the work that needs to be done, and then the contractor can can price it based on that. Okay, so for example, um, a super simple project. What do we need to be asking from our contractor? What should be included in our in our RFP or RFQ repre- request for proposal or request for quote? Well, you need to describe what it is you want, and in some cases you're going to know exactly what type of product and how you want the job done. And you should write that down, whether that's in an email or on a letterhead as a PDF, this becomes the request for quote. If you don't know exactly what you want, but you know why you're doing the projects, you know what the the end goals are, whether that's um, energy efficiency, whether it's comfort, whether it's safety, security, whether it's a maintenance repair, if you know the end goal, you can write that down. And then it's up to the contractor to figure out what is the technical solution to meet your requirements. So what you've written down becomes your request for proposal, and the contractor will use this information uh, to come up with both the appropriate solution and the fee for that solution. Okay, so I'm just thinking, I imagine simple email, it states maybe the reason for the project, improve energy efficiency, address a known issue, whatever the case may be. You may have some idea of the budget or range of budget that you want to spend. And then I need this to be eligible for incentives or rebates. So I have drafty windows. (laughs) I want to replace them, improve the energy efficiency. My budget is in this range and I want it to be eligible for the provincial incentives. That would be a good start. That would be a great start, yeah. If you wrote all that in an email, um, along with maybe like your schedule, your kind of timeline when you want to do this work, and also, do you want the windows to be able to open or not? You know, it sounds like kind of a simple thing, but just if you already know you want these windows to open or if you want them to be sort of a pivoting open or a slide open, you should write that down, right? And this becomes your, your RFP. In the technical legal sense, This is uh, formal information that's been provided to the contractor, and their price uh, must reflect that information. What you've requested. Yeah. So what about a more complex project? Uh, Maybe something really significant, like a a really big renovation. Um, Maybe you need to replace your your wall enclosure or something in your your building envelope has failed. Um, Or maybe it's a community-wide project and you're like, I'm going to replace every furnace with a heat pump. Who knows? Um, those are big. Where do we start with something that complex and that large? Well, fundamentally, the process is the same. You need to provide the contractor with a package of information. 
And that process can take time for a big project because there's a lot at stake and you want to make sure you get it right and you want to make sure that what you're getting is really suitable for your purpose. So once you start looking at a larger capital value project, a more expensive project, especially over $100,000, if you don't personally have experience with the with the type of materials or, or the, the subject that, that you're going to be asking for, it's probably a good idea to ask for help. And that could come as an informal advisor or a more formal advisor, such as an engineer or an architect who can draft these specifications in a more formal way. So that's going to involve a process of talking to stakeholders, talking to the tenants, owners, the organization, and they're going to ask you a bunch of very specific questions that are meant to, to solicit what it is you really need. Because sometimes you don't really know how to describe what you need, but you have a lot of information. You just need someone to ask the right questions. And an external advisor uh, will certainly do that. And they will take all of those pieces of information and put them in to the same document called a request for proposal, a quote. That'll probably be a longer document. You, you might imagine like a 30 page document, uh, or maybe it'll be a, a drawing set, right? Something that's done up in a, in a drawing software package like AutoCAD, and that will describe all these details for the contractor. I think you bring up a really good point there. You know, some of our, uh, some of the First Nations in BC, they're, they're quite advanced. They have large staff that are very experienced and they may be able to drop their own performance criteria or their own specifications. But if you don't have that skill or that specific knowledge, bringing in somebody with that detailed understanding to help you develop your proposals, is it can be a really good idea, especially if you're wanting to get a specific kind of performance out of it. So these are sometimes called owner's project requirements, right? Especially with larger projects, that's that's a term that you hear. Yeah, that's right. OPR. And so an OPR typically includes things like your design goals, so what your objective is, your performance criteria, including any any energy efficiency standards that you want to achieve. Like you mentioned before, some scheduling requirements if you have timelines that you're working to. Sometimes it includes budget or range of budget. Other things can be things like communication protocols. So what happens if a timeline is delayed or a piece of equipment needs to be changed? Or can you explain to us what a communication protocol might look like? Sure, well, there's a bunch of contract details that you can specify as well, right? So it's not just about the, the end product that's gonna be installed, but it's also about the how, the means and methods that this stuff gets done in, right? So what type of contractor or sub-trades are allowed to work on it? Do they need to be certified? And what are the conditions for their work? Do they need to clean the work site every day, for example? Is the, is the work site um, meant to have continued occupancy through this uh, development, which it is in some cases. So that needs to be taken into account. There might be changes throughout the project, and you might want to spell out how those changes are going to be communicated and what you expect from the contractor if, say, there's an increase in price. If you ask for a change and that reflects an increased cost to the contractor, you need a formal way of, of, of managing those transactions. So there's a bunch of contract details like that. I can see documenting changes, especially if there are changes to the design. You know, once you start getting in there, things can get more complicated. You discover things you didn't know. Making sure that those are documented, that those are approved, and there's clarity on both sides about what was agreed to. It's just, it's that's good solid project management. Yeah, absolutely. The last thing you want is 
you know, to, to go and, and, and walk around the site and see what kind of work has been done. And, and then you think, oh, well, that's, that's not what I wanted. That's not how I remember as agreeing on that change or how to handle this, this exception perhaps that was discovered mid project. And then the contractor says, well, this is how I remember that phone call. That's why it's worth documenting those things. And I know in, in our First Nations communities, we often see other kinds of requirements as well. So maybe requirements for training of maintenance staff or using local labor helps build capacity or reduce travel costs. You might see requirements to use uh, local building materials. So your requirements can be both technical and non-technical when we're developing these, these proposals as well, correct? Or requests for proposals. Absolutely. And as well, what kind of documentation that you want from the contractor at the end of the project is important and what kind of um, you know demonstration and handoff process that you're asking for right because if you don't say that stuff up front then the contractor will not have allowed for it because they're trying to give you the best price and the most fair price and then you get to the end of the project and you say oh hey can you please like spend a half day on site to um, you know explain these new things to our to our operation staff or our maintenance crew they'll say well we, we, we haven't accounted for that so it's a simple thing, it's a small thing, but it's, it's worth including in there. So it basically, you know, in this package, in this RFP, you're going to be including all the things that are technical and non-technical that you can think of that you want. For a successful project, you know, again, with certain scale, the more complex your project or the more you're asking from retrofit or a new build project, the more homework you want to do in terms of really getting into the details of defining what the project will look like, how you'll communicate with your contractors, all those sorts of details and probably really benefit from that extra work in the end. I think probably like anything in life, the amount of effort should scale to suit the value of the project. So it can, it can happen as fast as, you know, an hour, somebody spending an hour to draft an email that gets sent out to one or two or three contractors say, hey, I need this. You know, these are some things I can think of. Uh, can you please propose an option for this? And on the other side of it, you can hire uh, an engineer or an architect and it could take, you know, one or two months for that team to, to draft a long document that properly captures all the information. It's a wide range. It's, it's a good point, balancing the effort and reward. So we've kind of come at contractor selection and RFPs and RFQs from a very high level. But when we're narrowing it down specifically and looking at energy efficiency projects, be they new or uh, retrofit, what do we need to think about in terms of making sure that we achieve the objective of a more energy efficient building? What, what needs to go into our RFP or RFQ preparation process? Well, you need a, a way to communicate the, uh, the standard of energy efficiency that you're looking for. And sometimes this is uh, like a percentage-based thing, like a boiler might be uh, 83% thermally efficient versus 92% thermally efficient. So you could use some hard factual numbers like that. They also get uh, grouped into certain certifications that the, that the government supports. And uh, also certain incentive programs will have lists of these boilers that that represent that high end of the efficiency and then you might be able to say i'm looking for a boiler that's a that's appropriate for this um 
you know, it might be like a Fortis BC uh, boiler efficiency program. Gotcha. And then as you kind of alluded to before, I think if we, if we want to get more specific about performance requirements, doing the specification documents, developing them yourself, if you have the skills or hiring, uh, as you said, an engineer or uh, an architect to help you develop them if, if necessary, you can also reach out to equipment manufacturers and wholesalers. I mean, if there's a specific brand of equipment or something that you, you'd prefer, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. They can be very helpful. They often have uh, technical sales representatives that you can speak to on the phone who are like really knowledgeable about the specifics of how the units work and will often listen to your application that you tell them the story of what kind of building that you're putting it in and what, what you're kind of looking for. And they will help uh, guide you within their own product line, of course, but they'll guide you to the correct model. And they might be able to say, hey, you know, option A and option D will both work for you uh, for your particular case, but option D will use a lot less electricity and accomplish the same thing. So it might be a cost premium, but it will uh, reduce your monthly costs. Is that a good idea to ask the contractors for as well? Like saying, I want a good version and I want a better version, or give me some options to compare in terms of energy efficiency? Yeah, definitely. If, if it's something that you know you're doing the upgrade already, especially with HVAC equipment, with, with heating, ventilation, or air conditioning, I think it's a great idea to ask the contractor uh, for that because it's actually going to teach you a lot about what the equipment that you're getting is as well. So you can say, uh, you know, give me maybe the, the, the cheapest or the most direct replacement option, but also uh, please provide a price for a more energy efficient option. And, and tell me what the impact of that energy efficiency is going to be. And sometimes that can be surprising information too. Sometimes the extra cost for the energy efficient version isn't that much and you get a ton of other benefits. Yeah, that's often the case. And you'd hate to miss out on an opportunity like that just because you didn't know the right question to ask. And I think that gets into another aspect of the, the procurement process or the, the contractor selection process. And that's evaluating these proposals when they come in you know often we don't know the questions to ask like we don't know what we don't know so how do we evaluate these proposals and, and select the right contractors select the right solution for the for the problem that we're trying to solve so i'll circle back here to the difference between a quote and a proposal in that in the quote scenario where you're just getting a dollar value back from the contractors so you ask uh for three different contractors for a quote, well, that's an apples to apples comparison. They're all, they're all bidding on the same specification that you've given them, and uh, you should go with the lowest bidder. Uh, however, when you're asking for the contractor to provide you with a solution in the proposal scenario, each one of them is gonna send you a one or two page document that tells you what kind of product they'll use, how they're going to install it, and what it'll cost you. And that's really not apples to apples anymore. And this is where um, a weighted criteria for evaluating comes into play. And really, you should decide that upfront before you actually get the prices from the contractors. You should decide uh, how you're going to evaluate their proposals. And that really comes down to what you care about. You know, and so, you care about price, of course. Usually price represents somewhere between 30 and 60%. And then you might also care about the contractor's experience. Maybe it's how quickly they can do it. Maybe it's the energy efficiency of the product. Maybe one product has a one-year warranty and another one has a five-year warranty. 
So how valuable those are, you need to sort of like spell that out for yourself so that when you receive them, you can give each one of them a score in those categories and, and find out what's the best proposal for you. When I know in RFPs, they'll often state the evaluation criteria as well, correct? Where you're making, you're sending a clear message to the contractors or whomever is bidding on the work. This is what's important to me. Make sure you pay attention to this when you're preparing your response. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's often a little table that has four or five items on it. And uh, like I said, price is usually somewhere between 30 to 60%. And then the rest of the percent from 100 um, is broken up into the other categories. So one challenge that we see is when a client is really cost sensitive and they have a tight budget, they'll often weigh the budget really heavily, but that can lead to some less than great outcomes. As in so many things, sometimes the lowest price doesn't get you the best quality or maybe doesn't get you the performance that you're looking for. So what are the things that we can do to compensate for this or balance it out a little bit and make sure that we're getting contractors that are qualified to do the work and not just the lowest price? Well, I think there's a few tricks that you can use. Uh, first of all, you can have these minimum qualifying criteria to your RFQ. Uh, and that that is to say that um, the contractor not only has to just provide a price, but they actually have to have maybe demonstrated experience of at least one prior install with a similar product. They need to be perhaps certified with a certain organization. And if they don't meet those, then it's a no-go, right? So that can, that can help protect you a little bit from just going with, with a low price. Uh, another thing you could do is evaluate the proposals that you receive without looking at the price and actually give them an objective score on what the value of their proposal is, right? What kind of product, how energy efficient is it? You could even call their references and see like how, how much experience in this field that they have. Whatever evaluation criteria that you have there, do that first and then look at the price and see how that compares to the other prices that you have. And if you've still got the lowest price and you've got a good score on that other stuff, that's fantastic. You know you've got uh, a good opportunity on your hands. And I've seen that where you have actually the sealed bid, right? Like the, the sealed financials come in the envelope and there's a two-stage evaluation process where at stage one, they evaluate the, the content of your proposal and stage two, they evaluate the bid once they've selected kind of the, the contractors that are, that are scoring high in terms of their skills, knowledge and approach. It's definitely done that way sometimes. I think that's more of a formal process uh, for larger projects, but yeah. And I think that's an important part as well is the scale. You know, you're doing a Windows upgrade. You just want to make sure that they have their certified window installer. That would be like one criteria, price, you're good to go. That's fairly easy. Yeah, exactly. Whereas if it's a really large project, you might care about the, the contractor's ability to manage the project as well as their technical ability to install Windows, right? What about references? I think references are, are really important pretty much across the scale. Um, now, you can get around this when, you, when you've worked with them before, or if you have some sort of a pre-qualified list of, of trusted or already evaluated contractors. Um, but essentially, it's, it's very common practice to ask contractors for you know, one to three references of, of other clients that they've had and you might even ask for specific clients who have um, had similar projects 
to the ones that you're asking for. And that those references should include uh, a short description of the project that was, that was done for them, and uh, usually a contact name and phone number. And you can call them and you can ask, hey, how, how was this contractor? Did they, did they meet the design objectives and did they do it on time? So just like hiring staff or any other thing? Basically, yeah. It's, it's an interview process. So now that we've prepared our RFP or RFQ documents, we've defined what success is, we know what the criteria is, we know what we need, where do we find contractors to bid on our work? I know this is a huge stumbling block for, for a lot of folks, finding contractors to bid the work. Well, many organizations keep lists. Um, I mentioned before like pre, pre-qualified contractors. And uh, that may just be that they're in your region and that they have some basic uh, qualifications. So if you can keep a list of, well, at least three contractors, that can really help uh, do a lot of the work in advance. Certainly you should ask around, you should ask your peers in, in your field, right? If you're a housing manager, if you're in touch with other housing managers, it would be great to, to get their input on what contractors have worked well for them. That's always a valuable resource. Uh, product manufacturers can also provide some suggestions. Uh, they often have locally available but factory trained uh, installers for their products. They might have two or three contractors within a region who have been trained by their factory and that they uh, approve to work with their products. It doesn't mean that other contractors can't uh, access those products. It's a good indication that that would be uh, a quality contractor to go with. There's also um, literally contractor lists online. Uh, A couple of examples of this are the Clean BC program registered contractors and the Fortis BC uh, trade ally network. And these are, these are lists that have many contractors on them that have names and phone numbers. And they have basically gone through uh, an approval process already. So you can rest assured that they've met some minimum requirements by those programs. There's also a variety of industry associations and nonprofit organizations that maintain contractor lists that are available online and that you can often filter for to find someone who works in your region and uh, obviously with the trades that, that you're looking for. Some examples of this are the Technical Safety BC. They maintain uh, a really good contractor list. The Condominium Homeowners Association Business Members List is a great resource. The BC Building Envelope Council member list. Also the Roof Contractors Association of BC members list. Thermal Environment Comfort Association, known as TECA. They're quality first registered contractors. And the Mechanical Contractor Association of BC, the MCABC, lots of acronyms here. They have a great member directory where you can find um, contractors who have met uh, some basic qualifications uh, and that have an established practice within the region. And it's good to take note when you are searching these lists that getting on a membership list does not mean that you're a quality contractor necessarily. Um, So knowing what it takes to get on that list. So for example, TECA's quality first registered contractors, they have to have completed TECA's training. There's a often some sort of an auditing or a spot check. They sanction folks that, that fail to meet their performance standards. So if contractors on that list, you know that you're probably getting a fairly good quality. Whereas Condominium Homeowners Association is a great list for 
multifamily contractors, but you just purchase a membership and you get on that list. So it's not that they're bad or good, just that there's no evaluation criteria or, or performance criteria that, that's required to get them on there. That's right. Yeah. But certainly it's a starting point to actually finding some names and being able to evaluate them further. And a good way to find out about some of their training and background as well. As, as a general rule, if you're keeping up with industry associations and you're active in them, uh, you're going to be aware of emerging technologies, emerging best practices, and kind of, uh, in theory, up to date in your, in your training and knowledge. We all know that the final step of selecting a contractor is often a little bit more fraught. There's a lot of unknowns and indecisions. So working through some of the most common challenges that we see in the actual selection process, what do we do if we get, for example two quotes in and they look substantially the same, but the prices are wildly different. I've got flags going off. Why is one cheap and one so expensive? What do I do? Yeah, and you're right. This is something that happens quite a bit. If you're seeing a really wide price discrepancy like that, it's often because the assumptions that the contractors have going into it are different. So this is the time when you should um, ask questions and ask for clarity. So if you haven't spelled out exactly the, the scope of work that you want to do, and the contractor has not provided you with enough detail in their response for you to understand uh, exactly what it is they're proposing to do, then it's the right time to ask for further questions. I can think of a, an example that I, that I had with a client with a lighting retrofit, uh, came back with wildly different quotes. I guess get really curious and don't be afraid to ask detailed questions and get the clarification. Yeah, that's right. And it, it could be as simple as one contractor assumed that you would keep part of the equipment and they would just replace some components. Um, and the other contractor might assume that you need to replace the full thing. It could be something like that, right? And um, if, you haven't, if you haven't been clear enough in the information that you've provided, that's when you can get that type of discrepancy. What about when this happens in an RFP, for example? You know, maybe everything in their proposal looks pretty good, their prices are coming in pretty close, but they've proposed really different um, approaches or different systems, and now we're having to evaluate between two different systems. Yeah, that's, this is when it starts to get more tricky. And this is when I would refer back to the evaluation criteria. So you've, you've defined a couple of uh, sort of parameters that you're going to evaluate the proposals on. It's going to, one of them is going to be price for sure. And then various different things such as schedule, warranty, energy efficiency. So when you get back, uh, say three different proposals, I would create what's called a decision matrix. And if you've never heard of that before, it's a great, simple little tool, despite the fancy name. Um, if, you, if you Google it, you'll see lots of examples. And uh, it's basically just a table where you are um, multiplying some, some scoring uh, by a weighted criteria uh, to come up with a, a final score for each of the proposals. And you basically take the best of those scores. Excellent. I can see that being really helpful in terms of having some sort of a numeric value that you can really make the decision on or, or feel confident on. And ultimately, you have um, a legal obligation to do that, actually, when you're receiving different proposals. 
it's you're not allowed to just make uh, sort of a, an off the cuff judgment call or, some, or something that's very subjective and that is hard to describe about why you chose a certain one because it could be called into question maybe that you were playing favorites or that you had some bias or whatever. So it's really important to be able to break it down into categories and say this proposal scored three out of five on this one versus the other contractor's proposal only scored two out of five. And this was a really important category to me um, and so then numerically, that came out to the highest score. Gotcha. I can see that being really valuable. And it's kind of like showing your work, right? Making sure that you have that documentation to kind of reinforce why you made the decision should should anything go poorly with the project, but it won't because you've done all the hard work in the beginning. That's a really common practice for anybody who's, who's issuing RFQs and RFPs uh, as, as a fair way to handle these, to manage these situations. What about evaluating experience on these proposals in particular? Because it can be hard to read between the lines when somebody is writing their their experience. They're, of course, putting their best foot forward. So what are some of the things that we can look for maybe to, to help us evaluate, you know, how experienced are they? How how likely am I to be getting a good, good quality contractor? Evaluating a contractor's experience is a subjective process that can be a little bit difficult. I don't have an exact formula to give you but I'll certainly share some of the things that I would look for. First of all, how long have they been in business? Are they members of uh, trade associations uh, in this field? And do they have the specific training or certifications that you need? For example, if you need a gas fitter, they need to have that ticket, otherwise it's not gonna work. Uh, do they have a website? Uh, what, what kind of projects do they demonstrate on their website? Is what you're asking them to do within their core service or sort of a little bit outside of that core service. There might also be some online reviews of the contractors. Uh, you can also look at the Better Business Bureau uh, to try to get a grip on what their reputation is. And you can ask them directly, you know, what is their experience with this type of uh, product? And uh, can they provide some references for similar work? And can they provide uh, a name and contact number for someone you can speak to? Yeah, I think that's really important, Stefan, and I think you bring up some great points. You know, it's difficult to to judge somebody's skill uh, and evaluate their experience. So doing some due diligence and going through some of these different steps. A young contractor or somebody without a lot of experience is not necessarily going to do a bad job, but as long as it's balanced out with the, you know, the appropriate uh, trade certifications and, and uh, you might end up with a really, really quality job from somebody that's relatively new. Stefan, one of the things we haven't really touched on is warranties. So what are some of the common standards for warranties, both around like equipment and work? Well, equipment is generally warrantied by the manufacturer, uh, but the labor that it might require to replace that equipment if it should fail is not usually uh, included by the manufacturer's warranty. So that's something to look for if, the, if that kind of warranty is included. Now, generally, the contractor will warranty their own labor and installation generally for 12 months. And that is if there, a, a mistake is found in their work, if they didn't do it as was required, or if they just made a mistake that caused an event further down the road, um, they would come back and fix that. 
Stefan, I think this is a really good time to bring up uh, the importance of documentation as well when we're selecting our contractors. And we've, we've kind of touched on it before, but what are some of the things that we should be making sure to document as we're moving through the contractor selection process? What kinds of, what kinds of paperwork trail do we need? Well, certainly you need um, evidence of what information you've provided them, which is hopefully packaged in that, in that RFP format. And certainly you need uh, their fees and any conditions that they send along with those fees. So making sure you get all that in writing is, is a pretty standard requirement. By the end of the project, you should for sure get all the product specifications, uh, certainly from major products that were used, right? So let's say that there was a, a boiler installation. You don't want to have to question in the future what uh, make and model that boiler was. Should a repair be needed? some years down the road, you should have some type of a, of a technical document. It's often a PDF these days um, that describes um, the various requirements and uh, potentially even the replacement parts uh, for that boiler. So in terms of our, our contractor selection documentation, so whatever you provide, be it an email or a more formal request for proposal, that should be filed somewhere uh, so it's clear what you've asked for. And then if there are any addendums or changes to that, those emails or documents should be filed. And then the quotes that you get back um, or, or proposals that you get back, those should be filed as well. And any rebates in particular, making sure that you're keeping track of your invoices and that they include the make and the model number is really important in terms of claiming rebates. Yeah, that's right. And if you do have an engineer involved, they'll be providing some documentation, usually field reviews, and you want to keep those as well. And then I guess in the larger projects, uh, things like change orders, um, changes to timelines, any of those kinds of things that might come up during the process, uh, a larger project management process. Absolutely. Stefan, we've covered a lot of topics and a lot of details, and there's a lot of nuance when you're looking at uh, finding and selecting a contractor, again, depending on the scale, depending on the complexity of the project. Can you kind of sum up the high-level points for us? Yes, for sure I can. I think one of the most important takeaways is to know what you want and to ask for it. And if you don't know what you want, get help. Uh, it's really important to define success either with some detailed specification documents or just being really clear and open with the contractor about what equipment and installation needs that you have, whether that's to improve comfort, address moisture issues, etc. And if you know what equipment that you want or what performance standards that you have, state them and be clear about what trades or specific skill sets or certifications that they need to have. Another important thing to remember is that finding contractors is, is often hard and when you start the process, uh, it feels um, like a big world and you don't know where to look, but there are, are a bunch of industry lists and different member lists and it could be that you just need to ask around to find what is a good list to look for and then you can start applying some more filters. So use that phone a friend network. In terms of if the contractors are good, use references. Ask them for references, ask them to describe previous projects and, uh, and then you could call those references and ask them how those contractors did and they might be able to provide flags and if there was communication issues or schedule issues or product issues that can really be helpful. Try to um, validate if they have the appropriate certifications or training uh, for the type of work that you're going to be doing. If it's a brand new contractor this is when that will be relevant. And in terms of understanding if you're getting good value from a quota proposal, 
Well, to start with, I would encourage you to get more than one, right? And ideally no more than three and know what you are comparing to, right? You know, lay out for yourself what are the important uh, elements and how you're going to evaluate them. And if there's any information that you're not provided in those proposals, ask for the details so that it makes sense to you. Thanks so much, Stefan. I think that's a really good summary of our conversation today and some important takeaways for the listeners at home. Uh, big thanks to you for walking us through all this. Well, thanks for having me on, Dala. It's always a joy to participate in these discussions, and I hope the, the information that we talked about here can, can help some folks out. And a big thanks to you, our listeners, for taking the time in your day to learn more about finding and selecting quality contractors. We hope you found this helpful. Perhaps you have a few new ideas to bring to your work. For more information on the Home Energy Safe program or to download the next podcast in this series, please visit Fraser Basin Council's website and the First Nations Home Energy Safe webpage. You'll find there a companion resource for this podcast, along with links to incentive programs and resources available to Indigenous communities in British Columbia. You can also sign up for their newsletter to learn about new training opportunities and support programs. This podcast has been developed by SES Consulting as part of the Fraser Basin Council's First Nations Home Energy Safe program. The program is sponsored by the Province of British Columbia, BC Hydro, Fortis BC, and the Real Estate Foundation of British Columbia. Production by Aaron Trazo of Bird Media. A new shed or building an enclave or... Should I use those examples? Who built an enclave? What's an enclave? <laughs> I, I I've just lost 100% of my audience <laughs> with the use of the word enclave. Enclave. <laughs> Sounds interesting. Tell me more. <laughs>